John chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 1 again, just to give us the context, and I'm going to read through verse 21. John 3, 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In the book of John, as we've talked about, the important, I think one of the important things that John emphasizes is the idea of testimonies and bearing witness and in this section of John, we are talking about the, the testimony of the receivers. That is, those who have received him, as John talks about in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's this emphasis on those who receive Jesus for who he is into their lives, allowing him to be God, Lord, Master, King, Savior. And there is something that happens in their life, and so we have... But we have the testimony in John 1 through the end of chapter 4 of those who have received him. Of those, the, what happens when he's received. And as I mentioned the last time as we were talking about Nicodemus, I believe Nicodemus becomes a believer at some point in his life. I don't know if it was through this conversation directly or not or at this moment. There's no indication of that in John chapter 3. But in John 19, he's mentioned as bringing spices to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. And I think that that, I think that, that was a little bit a, a bigger deal than just like him being respectful or something. I think it indicates something that, that happened in his heart. And so I think we have evidence that Nicodemus becomes a believer, becomes a receiver of Jesus Christ. And so we have his testimony here. This is the testimony of Nicodemus uh, in a way. Uh, based on what, what Jesus told him, what, what was spoken to him. And as we talked the last time and through the first 
uh, eight verses of John chapter 3, the emphasis there is on the new birth, regeneration, and how important it is for us to recognize, I think there's an implication in what Jesus is saying. He doesn't exactly say it outright. He definitely doesn't say it outright. But I think there is implied in the words of Jesus Christ to Nicodemus, this great teacher of Israel, that you are a broken sinner, that you need, you need righteousness, you need God to do something in you if you want to be, if you want to receive eternal life. You want to be a part of the kingdom? You want to be a part of, God has to do something for you. And I think that that's implied here because there's all this emphasis to what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here as he mentions the fact that you must be born again. And, you ha- and that birth is of the Spirit, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And that we don't control it. There's, there's all that emphasis in there which indicates to me that, that it demands our, our sinfulness. Human depravity is demanded by regeneration and by the new birth. And so this, we must come to grips with our own sinfulness because of the fact that of the new birth demands that sinfulness. If you don't believe that you're a sinner, you can never be regenerated. Because you're not going to seek to be regenerated. You're not going to see the need for regeneration. And so it's, it's vitally important, if we're going to be regenerated, for us to realize how messed up we are, how sinful we are. And I emphasized that, hopefully, um, in, uh, in the, the last time I preached. But now I want to talk about the response to that. Which I think is what Jesus deals with in verses 9 through 21. I believe it's the response, in a way, to the fact of our sinfulness that's demanded through the new birth. Because, you see, our human nature is such that what happens to us when we're confronted with our own sinfulness is that our instincts tell us, try to be better. Try to make yourself a better person. Try, try to strive in your own strength, in your own power, to make yourself a better person and acceptable to God. I think that's the natural response when we are confronted with our sin. And, and we see this all over. This is not like, I don't think that this is a stretch for me to say. And, and the case in point that, that I think proves it most glaringly is a little thing we call New Year's resolutions. Why do we have New Year's resolutions? Everybody thinks about them because they recognize that they're falling short, right? It's to push themselves to be better. It's to push themselves to be more disciplined. It's to push themselves to be what they want to be, a respectable human being. And the fact of the matter is, is that the fact that we are always trying to make ourselves better, I mean, can I, maybe I should point out, to an, point out another case in point. And that is the large selection of self-help books in most bookstores. I don't know if you go to bookstores very often, but if you ever have a chance to step into a Barnes and Noble, and just, I, I'd encourage you to just look through the self-help section. It's, it's packed full of books. Why? so that people can help themselves be better, right? That's what we're all about. We're striving to be better people. So so no matter what, I know it's sometimes hard to get people to admit, 
But if you, if you really, you know, just talk to people, you know, and just converse with them, don't be, don't be judgmental, don't be condescending, but just be honest with them and have a conversation with them, I'm sure you could probably get most people to realize that they're messed up, that they're not, they're not perfect, and they're not doing it all right. But what they're trying to do is trying to be good enough, right? That's what we're all trying to do, trying to be good enough. Now, if I can just push myself to be a little bit better, a little more disciplined, lose some weight, you know, don't yell at my kids so much, then I'll be acceptable to God, maybe, or at least to other humans. And failing to recognize this, um, we, we, when we do this, we fail to recognize that we can't take care of our, our sin on our own. Now, obviously, that's implied in the new birth as well, Okay. I think that in Jesus' statements in the first part of this chapter, it's implied that because it's not only implied that you're a sinner, but it's obviously implied that you can't fix that yourself because there's a new birth that takes place. But I think that there's even more that, that he builds on that point. And I think that that's while that's established that there is this new birth and it's necessary because of our sinfulness, in the first part of this chapter, I think in verses 9 through 21, that what Je- what's emphasized here is how we ought to respond to that then. How do we respond to our own sinfulness being pointed out? And how should we, re- how should we deal with it? And I think that the answer is pretty plain. There's really no flowery language that I can come up with to state this in any other way but the most blunt way possible. We must believe in Jesus Christ to deal with our sinfulness and find eternal life. And, and, and that idea of belief is mentioned over and over again in these verses. I, I'm sure you probably caught it, but it starts really in, um, really even up in earlier than what you're probably thinking because you're automatically going to th- think John 3.16, but it's even earlier than that. Because he says in verse 12, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then in verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this over and over again, this repetition of the idea of belief, it's so important here. This is very closely connected with the new birth. Faith and the new birth go hand in hand. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. I don't want to go into the details of it right now. But they're clearly intertwined by Jesus' teaching here in John chapter 3. And therefore, this is the proper response to to your acknowledgement of your own sinfulness. If you really believe that you're a sinner, the only response that makes sense is to believe in Jesus Christ and His righteousness for eternal life. Because you can't fix yourself. There's no way that we can fix ourselves. I was pointing this out in children's church today, and, and I, and I kind of keep building on this example because I thought it was so poignant when I heard it, but last year at Heart Conference, there was a man from Africa who was speaking, and he talked about, and I've mentioned this before from the pulpit, but I, I, again, I, th- I just think it's really poignant. He talked about how if I run a, a red light here on Johnson Street, you know, if, I, if I go out of here and run the red light on Park and Johnson, I can stop at every red light the whole rest of the way down Johnson Street. In fact, I could stop at a re- every red light for the whole rest of my life, never run another one, but it doesn't change the fact 
but I stopped at that one. I didn't stop at that one. And if a police officer pulled me over three lights from there, I could say to him, but officer, yes, I ran that light, but I've stopped at every other red light since then. And it won't make any difference. It doesn't cover up my sin. And I, and I mentioned that today in children's church because I was talking, I asked the kids in class, I said, I said, well, you know, how can we be what Jesus is demanding in Matthew chapter 5? Because it seems to be demanding a lot of perfection there, right? You know, pursuing righteousness, having a pure heart. And, and, and one, of the, one of the little boys raised his hand and he said, obey. And I'm like, but there's a problem. You've been disobeying. If you steal, if I steal $5 from you one day, but never steal $5 from you again, it doesn't make the $5 that I stole right. It doesn't make it come back to you, and it doesn't make it less sinful that I stole that $5. No matter how much I haven't stolen, the one steal proves me a sinner. The one red light I run proves me a sinner, and there's nothing I can do to make it better after that. It's all there blatant before me. And so I am not, it's not working for me to improve myself. I need Jesus. He's the only one that can improve me. And so I believe what John teaches here in the, in the discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus and possibly his own commentary I think what he says here reveals five facts about the new birth that encourages this belief, that encourages us to trust Jesus Christ, believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so um, I want to point out those five things, and then we'll go this evening. First of all, Jesus' identity makes him highly qualified to teach about the new birth. So first, the first thing that Jesus talks about here is who he is and why we should listen to him. In verse 9, Nicodemus is greatly confused. How can these things be? He says. Now, this, is, this is blowing my mind, Jesus. And, he sa- and Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? There, there's, there, there's something to this. I think what Jesus is pointing to is, that, is the new birth, the concept of the new birth. And this is what was confusing Nicodemus. And what he says to Nicodemus is, You are the teacher. He says the teacher. It's not just a teacher. It's the teacher of Israel. And you're confused about this? Like, he must have been a very highly respected teacher for Jesus to say, you are the teacher. But this was obvious from the Old Testament. You look at passages like Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 and Jeremiah chapter 31, and even Deuteronomy, I think, emphasizes the new birth. It emphasizes that God was going to give Israel a new heart. What in the kingdom, this was going to be true of all of Israel, that they were all going to be regenerated as they enter into the kingdom. Well, here, we are, so I think it was something that what, what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are focusing on in their prophecies are the fact that everyone's going to experience this, but I think that this is something that was true of Old Testament Israel, that they were regenerated. They were brought, they were being infused with new life, some of them. Those that, those that were, were, uh, were believing in faith, were regenerated. There was evidence of people being regenerated in Old Testament Israel. And this was something that is true in the Word of God, and so why should it be blowing Nicodemus' mind to be thinking about the new birth? 
Jesus says, this is something you should be understanding. You should not be confused about this. This is pretty plain in Scripture. That this is reality. And then he gets into his authority. He says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You see the emphasis on testimony and receiving the testimony and belief? Um, bearing witness as well here, again. But what he, he, he points, he says we. I think he's kind of playing off of Nicodemus's earlier question. We know you're a teacher in Israel. That's how Nicodemus started the conversation off. And Jesus says, well, we, you know, we'll, we'll go there. You know, we know what we're talking about. We have seen things. We bear witness to the truth. But you don't receive us. And the you there is plural, by the way. He's pointing to all of, you know, all the we that Nicodemus was talking about. You guys aren't listening to us. But we know what we're talking about. And I think what Jesus is talking about is himself and everybody who follows him. There is a certain amount of confidence, by the way, we can have as believers as we teach the words of Jesus Christ. You can be confident that what you're teaching is truth. We know what, of what we, we speak of what we know, he says. We know that this word is true. We know that what Jesus says is true here. And we bear witness to it. I think we can, we can adopt these words of Jesus Christ for our own. We bear witness to what we know and what we have seen. Jesus says then, if I, had told you about, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so what Jesus is essentially saying here is I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to just teach you the basics. This is something you should have understood while you were here on earth. God has already revealed this. It's in the Old Testament. This is not new teaching that I'm giving you. You should be able to understand it. And he said, and because you're not even receiving the earthly things, you're not even understanding the basics of what, of God, of what God is doing here on earth, I can't speak to you of heavenly things. And he said, and I'm qualified to teach you about heavenly things. Because I've come from God. That is essentially what Jesus is saying. He is calling on his deity as his authority to his message here. And this gives us this, this teaching about the new birth then is greatly important. That means, that means you should listen to everything that Jesus has to say here. So, I, I'm, so basically the first point is listen. Because what I'm about to say is all from Jesus. And Jesus is qualified to teach about this stuff because he's God. He's come down from heaven. So, so we have this authority to the words of what Jesus Christ says here. And then he gets into verses 14 through 16, which are the verses that we're probably most familiar with. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus' second, or the second thing that John emphasizes here, I think, is that Jesus' death makes the new birth and thereby eternal life possible. Jesus' death makes the new birth and thereby eternal life possible. And this is what Jesus is saying. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I love what, I love what Jesus does here. This is great. Because there's this double meaning. 
in what he said. He's just got done talking with Nicodemus about how he's ascended to heaven, or he's, he's descended from heaven and he will ascend to heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. That is the Son of Man. That's me, he's essentially saying. Jesus. And so he, when he says that, then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he's kind of playing off of that idea of ascending and the glory that he is supposed to receive as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that's not all he's saying. He's not just playing off of that because then we see something in the next verse, in, in, in verse 6, well, two verses down, verse 16, that points to the fact that He gave His only Son. I think there's this indication of the death of Jesus Christ as well. And and this isn't, I mean, we automatically think of this, right? We're like, oh, this is obviously a reference to His death on the cross. You know, and and, and by the way, I think Nicodemus probably could have figured that out. I don't think this was, um, this was like some hidden knowledge or something. I think it could have been obvious to Nicodemus if he would have wanted to hear. But I think that Nicodemus had some of that same problem probably when he was hearing this. And maybe not. I mean, maybe, maybe, he, got, maybe he grasped it. Maybe he thought of Isaiah 53 right away. But what I think there's something here in this double meaning that Jesus te- speaks. Why does he speak in double meanings? Well, I think it's connected to the same reason why he spoke in parables. In Matthew 13, he tells us why. It's so that those who have ears will hear. And those that don't have ears and, or don't have ears to hear will basically ignore it. If Nicodemus wanted to find out the truth of what Jesus is trying to say here by, about the Son of Man being lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, then he probably could have. He just needed to, he needed to look. He needed to look into the Word of God and find it. And those that are willing to look and dig and find out what God is saying, you will find it out. It's available. I think it's interesting when Jesus talks about his parables in Matthew 13 that, you know, we, we <coughs> excuse me, he talks about the fact that, you know, they ask him, why do you speak in parables? And he's like, well, it's so that they, even though they have ears, they won't see, and even though they have eyes, or even though they have eyes, they won't see, and even though they have ears, they won't hear. So it seems like he's trying to purposely confuse them, in a way. But then, what, but then it's interesting to me is that the disciples have to ask at least, at, about at least two of the parables, right? The, the ones that are actually following him, they have to ask too. They're like, um, so what did you mean back there? You know that parable you just told, so what did that mean? So it isn't, it isn't like just because you're a believer, it's like you have some magical knowledge that, you know, just poof, you're, you all of a sudden know everything. You get it all. It's that if you're a believer, you understand that you've got to keep searching to figure it out. And that's what the disciples did. You know, do you think anybody, if, Jesus, if anybody would have come up to Jesus and said, what did you mean by that parable? Do you think he would have said, oh, sorry, I speak in parables so you guys don't get it. So, sorry, thanks. You know, no, of course not. Jesus would have told them about the parable if they just would have asked about it, but who had the character to ask? The believers, the, the disciples. They're the only ones that had the character to ask, and that's why they asked. That's why they found out. They knew what the parable meant because they asked. You know what the Word of God means? Are you willing to ask? Are you willing to find out the meaning of the things? You can find out. 
by looking into the Word of God and knowing it and loving it and continuing to read. I'm not saying it's going to automatically, bam, it's going to be like, you know, magic and something's just going to bang, you know, appear across, you know, like see it written in the sky. No. If you ask God to give you understanding of His Word and you continue to study it and you continue to read it and you look into what other people are saying about it and try to understand it, you will understand it. I think, that's what, I think that's the point. And that's why Jesus speaks in double meanings and parables. It's because he's trying to find the people who really want to hear. You've got ears. Do you really want to hear? You've got eyes. Do you really want to see? Listen and look. You can find the truth. Uh, there was really something interesting that I was reading some different commentaries and, and Calvin in particular pointed out something that I thought was interesting. I don't know if it's something that I would necessarily make. I think he kind of reads into this just a little bit to get this, but I thought it was interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention it to you. He talks about, compare, he compares himself to the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, which by the way, I thought of this. I thought it's interesting that Jesus compares himself to a serpent. Because, you know, that's not like normally what we would, you know, think would be a great comparison, the Son of Man, you know, the Son of God to a serpent. You know, serpents in Scripture are generally really bad. But Jesus, you know, compares himself to the serpent that's lifted up. It's obviously the healing serpent, not the one that's causing the destruction, but still, a serpent, you know, not the best metaphor. I think sometimes we've got to be careful about just because something is a metaphor for one thing in Scripture, you know, serpents are definitely connected with Satan in Scripture. I don't think that means that Jesus is connected to Satan here. Okay? Be careful about you know, drawing a broad brush, metaphors always mean this in Scripture type thing. I think we have to be careful about that. But here's what Calvin says. The metaphor here concerning Jesus and the serpent is not inappropriate or far-fetched. As it was only the outward appearance of a serpent, but contained nothing within that was pestilential or venomous. So Christ clothed himself with the form of sinful flesh, which was yet pure and free from all sin, that he might cure us in a deadly wound of sin. It was not in vain that when the Jews were wounded by serpents, the Lord formerly prepared this kind of antidote. And it tended to confirm the discourse which Christ delivered. For he saw that he was despised as a mean and unknown person. He could produce nothing more appropriate than the lifting up. And I think it's interesting. I think he, he draws out something rather interesting there. That, that there's this connection to the purity. You know, that, that that serpent was just the symbol of a serpent. It really wasn't the same as all other serpents because it didn't have the venom. Jesus Christ had the form of sinful flesh, but wasn't it sinful? He was perfect and pure and free from all sin. Like I said, I think he might be drawing it a little bit too far and you know, digging a little too deep there, but still I thought it was an interesting point. And yet, I think the emphasis here, though, is not on all of that. It's really on, the. I think the emphasis is on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It really is pointing to the cross more than anything else. And actually, Calvin kind of downplays that in his commentary, but I think, that this is, I think this is true, that it is pointing to the cross. And I think that Nicodemus could have known, if he wanted to know, that Jesus was talking about the cross when he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that is the only way to eternal life. It's looking at the cross. And I don't, I, I don't think I probably in this crowd need to go into all the details of that story in the Old Testament, but the, the, the Israelites in Numbers 21 were complaining 
about the manna, Jesus, God sends in serpents to, to punish them, to drive them to repentance, which it works. It drives them to repentance. They cry out to God for deliverance, recognizing their sinfulness. And he tells Moses, put up the bronze serpent on a pole, and everyone who looks at it will receive eternal life. And what's interesting to me is that in that story, not everyone looks. How dumb do you have to be? You know? I mean, really. You're dying. You're in the pain of poison by a serpent, and you're unwilling to listen to the Word of God and obey it by looking at the serpent. We are in the pains and throes of death in sin. And yet how many of us resist looking at the cross when we should look at the cross? And, and I, by the way, I don't think this is just unbelievers. I mean, it's easy, to, it's easy to point to, you know, the heathen world that's all outside this building right now, and man, how could they be so stupid as to not look at the cross? What about when you're tempted? Where are your eyes at? The cross is there. Do we have to have a Lord's table for you to remember the cross? Is that the only time that you're going to think about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that, he, that your sin is horrible and heinous and that it's destroying you? Or can you listen? Can, can, you, can you know that Jesus died on the cross and the cross is real and look to the cross for your life even in the temptation as a Christian? Look to the cross. That is where eternal life is found. And that is where we turn away the death that comes from sin, even for a Christian. Romans 6.23, is, Romans chapter 6 is ta- speaking more to Christians than it is to unbelievers. And it says at the end of that chapter that the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look to the cross. There's deliverance from the sin and the death. And in these verses, I think, is tied up the third thing as well. Not only does the, this, is that bleh, bleh, I spit it out, Jesus' birth make the new birth and thereby eternal life possible, I believe also tied up in these three verses is the concept that man's belief is the natural response to the new birth. And um, I could get into a, a, a pretty lengthy discussion on whether faith precedes re- regeneration or regeneration precedes faith and how all of justification and the relationship between timing and all of that. I'm not really interested in that right now. This is what I do know. Based on this passage, regeneration and faith are so intricately connected that if you try to separate them, you are doing a great theological disservice to the, to the doctrine of salvation. You cannot separate salvation, regeneration, I'm sorry, and believing faith. And there, that means, in my mind, there's only one thing that that means. No baby can ever be regenerated through the waters of baptism. And I know that I'm speaking to a Baptist crowd here, so that doesn't really necessarily shock anyone. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's written in Scripture here. You can't deny the, the, the tight, interwoven connection between faith and and the new birth here. When, when Jesus goes from new birth, new birth, new birth, believe, 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 it has to be connected. And it is the natural response. When God works in your life and calls you out of sin, when you have the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and, and for salvation, you will believe. It is connected. And you cannot separate those two things. I'm not interested in the timing. Because man's timing is all about linear timing and not about eternal timing. And it doesn't matter 
how we think about it. I'm more concerned about the fact that they're all connected. It's, it's all woven together, and that is what he says here, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You think there might be a reason why Jesus said those almost exact same words twice? In two verses? It might be important. It might be making a point about the connection between regeneration and belief, which leads us to the next point. I believe this is, in verses 17 through 21, it's kind of like these verses just build on each other, so it's really hard to draw distinctions between them. And my next two points are going to come out of kind of a combination of everything that's talked about in 17 through 21. First of all, man's love of darkness and therefore rejection of the new birth is self-condemning. Self-condemning. Man's love of darkness and therefore rejection of the new birth is self-condemning. And, and the rejection of, this, of the new birth is seen in unbelief. That, that seems to be the connection. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him, or world might be saved through him. This, this is basically the summation of this point, but God, he, he just gets done saying in, in verse 16, God sent his only begotten Son, And then he says, he did not send him to condemn. It's not about condemnation. I think that this is an important note to get. And Calvin says it this way. I think this was good. When Christ says in other passages he has come to judgment or condemnation, which he does, by the way, in John 9.39, he actually says he's come for condemnation. It seems to contradict. He said, or when he is called a, a stone of offense, when he is said to be set for the destruction of many, like in Luke 2.34. This may be regarded as accidental or as arising from a different cause. For they who reject the grace offered in him deserve to find him the judge and avenger. In other words, Jesus only comes to condemn those who condemn themselves. And that's the point that he's making here. I think that the point that Jesus is making in other passages is not about the same type of condemnation. Yes, Jesus comes to judge. And and yes, he comes to baptize with water or with the Spirit and with fire, which I think is a point to judgment. There is a judgment that comes through the, the appearance of Jesus Christ. But we must emphasize the fact that this does not that it, it, we are not condemned by him. We are condemned by ourselves. We are self-condemned. And that's what he says here. So he doesn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. So how do we know then who's condemned? Well, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, read, rejects the new birth, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So so the whole point is that we, we love darkness. And because we love darkness and we love sin, and we do, don't we? I mean, I do. I'm going to be honest with you. I like myself and I like my sin way too much. 
I hate that about me. But I recognize that it's real. And so I, I love darkness. And because I love darkness, my deeds are evil. My works are evil. And I pursue the condemnation. I self-condemn. I am self-condemned by my wicked works and my love of evil, my love of sin. And again, this is proven over and over and over again. It doesn't take long. Interact with a few human beings and you, you'll agree with me. It's the way we are. And interesting in here as well is tied up a second double meaning. Yes, the, the light here points to doing good and right. But in John's Gospel, Christ is the light. This is from John Morris. He says, John is here speaking of Christ coming to men. The supreme condemnation of the men of his day, John says, was that when Christ, the light of the world, came to them, they rejected him for they loved the darkness. And this is talked about, Christ is called the light of the world in John 1. He's called the light of the world in John 6. He's called the light of the world in John 9. He's called the light of the world in John 12. This is something else. I mean, honestly, I... I I almost was second-guessing my outline of the book of John after reading about the light of the world and how it appears in John's Gospel. I think you could probably form an outline of the, the Gospel of John based on that phrase, the light of the world, and that, that Jesus is the light. But the fact of the matter is, is that the, we love the darkness and we don't love the light. Whether it's the good or Jesus, it doesn't matter. Because why? He tells us because it exposes our sin for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We don't want to be exposed as a, as a sinner. We don't want to be exposed as bad. And so why is it that they tried to kill Jesus? They were trying to put the light out. It was exposing their sin. We don't like to have our sin exposed, so we try to put the light out. We try to ignore the light. If I just don't think about the light, then it won't expose my sin. That's what we think. We're so self-deceived. And we condemn ourselves because we hate the light. We love the darkness. We love the sin. We love to cover ourselves and cover our sin and try to hide and think that we're getting away with it and that God doesn't see, but the light is still shining. And someday the light will shine so brightly that none of us will want to be there because it will expose everything that we've ever done. And it condemns us. We are condemned of ourselves. Don't, don't. Jesus being the only way is not the condemnation. It's the way. It's not, I, I don't remember if I read this in a commentary about this or whether it was in something else that I read, but the, but the bad part is not that Jesus is the only way. It's the fact that Jesus is a way at all. That is the wonder of it. Why is there a way? We don't deserve a way. We deserve to be condemned. And we prove it in our own sinfulness and our love of the darkness. We deserve to be destroyed, and yet there's a way. Yes, it's only one way, but a way. We should pursue the way. Pursue the light. Which brings me to the last point, and that is that man's belief, and therefore new birth, is proven by a changed lifestyle. Verse 21, he says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna wrap up in this. I'm, I think I've made application throughout this. I just want to wrap up with applying what I think is going on here. He says, "But whosoever does the truth, or does what is truth, is what what my translation reads." But it literally says, "Does truth." 
whoever does the truth. It's like, does the truth? How do you do truth? Well, I think this has been emphasized, hopefully, enough at Trinity Baptist Church through, um, through the preaching of the Word of God that you, you understand exactly what this means. That you cannot separate what you do and what you believe. What you, what you do and what you believe are so drastically com- combined together that it proves one and the other. That's what James 2 is all about. That, we just talked about it on Wednesday night, too. It's all tied up in Revelation chapter 2. Read, the, read about the churches to, uh, the letters to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. You want to see how closely works are connected to your faith? You can't separate them. Yes, it's not about what you do. You don't save yourself. We've proven that. G- Jesus said you have to be born again. You can't be good enough. If you really believe, you're going to be different. And it's going to be obvious to everybody. We gotta be different. I'm constantly I, I, I am so convicted about how not different we are. About how, we, I am. We we gotta be different. And I don't mean just different from who we were, but I mean different from everything. Different from if if it's not that much of a difference between everybody who loves the darkness and you, how can you say you love the light? How can we really say that? Is, is there... I, I know you're here on a Sunday night. And that's great. But what else is there? What else is making you different? Are your works proclaiming the truth that you love the light and that you hate the darkness? Are your entertainment choices proving that you love the light and hate the darkness? Are the things that you say to other people proving that you love the light and hate the darkness? The attitudes of your heart, the responses to your kids, the responses to your husband or wife, response to your boss, your attitude at work, your style choices, what does it say about you? Do you love light and hate darkness? Or do you love light and want as much of the darkness as you can possibly get? That doesn't work, right? You understand that. Loving light and having as much of the dark. It's like, it's like you want to be in a room with the lights all on. Do you want to have darkness in the room as well? It can't happen. You understand that? I think light and darkness is such a great way to picture it. Because whenever you've got light, the darkness is gone. If you love the light... Darkness can't be there. And so our adoption of things that the world loves means one thing. When we love those things, there is no light. Because we're in the darkness. And I'm not not trying to say you're not a Christian. I'm saying that you're not letting the light on your love, the thing that you want, the thing that you desire. Thing that you're passionate about. 
hate the darkness, love the light. It will be obvious in the things that you do. It will be clearly seen that your works have been carried out in God.